Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and as we just sang, we were reminded of what our Savior said in that garden, not your not his will, but your will. Father, this scene nestled in the Gospels, the Garden of Gethsemane, is troubling. <laughs> it's difficult, and yet it's beautiful. Guide us as we go to the text. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this body of believers. We know there are some today such as Lana Stoller, who's recovering from hip surgery. We pray for her. We know for some, continuing mourning of loss. And Lord, there's a, a lot of distractions from this week. We even lost an hour. So Father, help us to clear those cobwebs, these distractions, and focus on what you would have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 is where we are in our journey through the gospel. Luke 22, we're starting in verse 39. As I mentioned in the prayer, this is a very difficult text on one level. <laughs> on many levels, it's difficult. It's troubling. It's disturbing. Let's look at what the text says, what Luke records, starting in verse 39. Then Jesus went out and made his way, as he customarily did, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Just remember, previous week we just looked at the upper room. They were there, and we'll look at a map here in a second, of the upper city. Uh, the very wealthy who lived within the city walls, that's where they had met for the Passover. And now they're at the Mount of Olives. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he went away from them about a stone's throw. Then he knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, take the cup away from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And in his anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And the sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he got up from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping, exhausted from grief. So he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. If you're following along in the notes that you have before us, the scene starts here at the foot of the Mount of Olives. In fact, today there is a church called the Church of Agony or the Church of All Nations that marks the spot. It was built in 1924 over a Byzantine church built in 380 AD by Theodosius I, the supposed spot where Jesus prayed, Father, not my will but yours be done. The church is beautiful, and, and as you might expect, if you were to go inside and you look at the asp that is inside, you would see it has this mosaic of Jesus praying there on the rock. Uh, you would expect that. If you looked at the exterior as well, you would see a familiar scene as well, Jesus praying. And in fact, it has the words from Hebrews uh, 5 in Latin that says, during the days Jesus lived on earth, he offered up in prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears came to the one who saved him from death. So that's there. And you have the four statues of the four evangelists, the four gospels 
who all record the scene. But what is surprising is at the top. Inevitable, I'll have folks say, why are there deer at the top? Is this for St. Nicholas? I mean, and I, what, what is that there for? The architect designed it for the purpose of recalling Psalm 42 that declares, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. You think about it, it's a most fitting psalm for the Garden of Gethsemane. In this most disturbing scene where Jesus agonizes in his interaction with the Father and his disciples who cannot seem to be alert or stay awake and follow along, you still see underlying all of this is Jesus panting for longing for his Father and his willingness to submit to God's will. And we're going to see that as we move along in the text. So let's look at the text and let's look and see what the states here starting again in verse 39. Jesus goes, it says, to the Mount of Olives. The Matthew and Mark tells us that it is the Garden of Gethsemane, which means oil press, uh, there again on the slopes of Mount of Olives. And the text tells us it was his customary tradition to go to this garden to pray. Now, I don't know about you, but if I knew that I was going to be arrested shortly thereafter, I wouldn't go where I customarily go. <laughs> Find a different place to pray, right? There are plenty of gardens that you could have found, or make it quick and then get right over the, the Mount of Olives into the wilderness. They'll never find you in there, and then you're safe. But no, no, as was his custom. One of the things we're going to see as we journey through this uh, event here in chapter 22 is Christ is in charge. No one else. <laughs> he, he is calling the shots. And we know that it is he who gives up his life for the ransom for many. Well, the text tells us in verse 40, the reason they do this, they've ended singing one of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through about 118, as they've ended the Passover meal. They've gone uh, down. In fact, if you looked at this next map, you would see they left the upper room area, which is the upper city, would have went down the south side uh, of the temple, or actually the old city, down the Kidron Valley, or up the Kidron Valley, we would say, to the Mount of Olives. So this is the path that they're taking. Ironically, he'll go right back to that position because he's going to go to Caiaphas's house during the hearings, which we'll look at next week as we move along with Peter's denial, etc. So going back to the text, we follow this path that we see here, and we move, and we're going to the garden for the purpose of praying. Five times that word will occur in this text. It's bookend. It's an inclusio. It starts with prayer. It will end in prayer in this scene. And it shouldn't surprise us because the pressures and temptations of this life are great. It should cause us as a believer to take prayer very seriously, just as Jesus does. You look at the gospel of Luke, every major event in the life of Jesus he is found praying. Interesting, isn't it? I remember uh, an elderly professor I had, he said, if, if the Son of God needed to pray, how much more are we? And he's right, you know, as you see this. This past week, some friends of ours sent a picture of their five-year-old daughter sitting in a chair. And they asked her, what are you doing, honey? And she goes, well, I'm having my quiet time. She was looking at the American Girl doll catalog. <laughs> 
that's not taking prayer seriously, right? Uh, our prayer time must be taken seriously. It's, it's easy, isn't it, to the busyness of life to deter us from a meaningful time with the Lord. And Jesus, time and time again, as displayed here in this text, shows us that prayer is essential, it's vital, and I would argue it's powerful. Notice what he says to the disciples. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. What's the temptation? What's the concern that Jesus has for his disciples? Well, clearly, I would argue, it's that Satan will sift them. He will distract them. Prayer should protect them from the unfaithfulness that could arise and encourage them to persevere. Prayer is important for the disciples because it shows they need to be dependent on the Lord and turn to him for provision. As we have already seen, Satan has already sifted one. The text tells us Satan entered into the heart of Judas, who we're going to see in a minute here in the text. So Jesus encourages them to pray. He then goes and prays about a stone throw away. I searched the world wide web to figure out what's a stone's throw, uh, you know, and they said the average person throws a stone 120 to 150 feet. Uh, certainly that's great if you're trying to maintain social distancing for COVID. So I don't know. But, you know, we're looking at enough of a distance that they perhaps did not hear all that Jesus was saying to the Father in his prayer, etc. But they could still keep their eye on him and know where he's at. Regardless, Jesus is alone, isn't he? He's alone with the Father and he's going to be all alone here in due course. And the text tells us Look at that it says, he knelt down and he prayed. Matthew tells us he, he literally prostrates himself to the ground, his face to the ground as he kneels. And Mark mentions the ground as well. And so he prays this and it's in agony that he delivers this to the Father. Text tells us, Father, again, this intimacy between the Father and the Son that's being highlighted here in this passage. If you look at Jewish writings in the intertestament period between the old and the new and up through the first century, the Jews might refer to God as father collectively, but never as an individual. And this is what is unique with Jesus is that he refers to the father as an individual. And his agony is seen, I would argue, not only in his request and the prayer, which we're gonna look at in a minute, his posturing, which is only further highlighted in a minute, but also his, his petitions. So not only does he ask for prayer from the disciples, not only does he encourage them to pray, not only is he knelt down and prostrate, but he is also, as we're going to see here, his petition to the Lord. The petition is clear. It says, Father, if you are willing, notice his concern is first with God's will, not his own. It says, take this cup away from me. And you go, wait a minute, did he have a Yeti vessel that I didn't know about? And what's he, what's he referring to? Take this cup. Well, the phrase occurs 17 times in the Old Testament. It often refers to God's wrath. Isaiah 51, let me read that text to you. It says, wake yourself. Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have been drunk with the hand of the Lord, the cup, here it is, of his wrath who have drunk the dregs of the bowl, the cup of staggering. Who will console you? 
devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? And so Jesus, this view argues that the cup is the wrath of God that the Lord is saying, Father, remove this. Some say, no, 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 the cup refers to suffering. He's looking at the physical anguish that comes from the crucifixion that will happen the next day. Hebrews 5 seems to indicate it, it is the, the former. It is the, the wrath of God. Listen to the text. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Again, this is the text that's on the church of agony there in Jerusalem. With loud cries and tears to the one who's able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who believe in him. The writer of Hebrews, I would argue, indicates that the cup that we're dealing with is the wrath of God. You say, why is there wrath? Because of sin upon humanity. It's no wonder one theologian calls the Garden of Gethsemane one of Christianity's greatest possessions. It is that. The request that he makes is that, Lord, if it's possible, take the cup away from me. But please note, it's secondary to God fulfilling his will. One commentary commentator states, he makes known the desire of his heart to God, that is Christ, but his primary concern is to accomplish God's will. If we were to look at Matthew and Mark, we'll see three petitions that are made. There's three times Jesus will speak to the Father. Luke condenses these in his narrative, but it's clear as you look at those petitions, there is a call not to endure the cross or take on sin. The Greek Orthodox Church talks about there is unknown agonies that aren't even voiced in the text. But all that resides, Jesus states, but if it's your will, I'll do it. <laughs> Notice, Jesus doesn't base his decisions on emotions or feelings. If it was, he would have made a beeline to Martha and Mary and Lazarus' home over in Bethany, just on the other side of the ridge. He did not doubt the character of God, the Father. Are you serious? Do you really understand what you're asking of me? No, none of that. He did not argue with God or set forth a, a list of excuses or demands. Well, if I do this, God, this is what we're going to do. He did not buckle or collapse under the weight. I can't do it. It forms a fetal position and that's it. No, no, no. He says, Father, if you're willing, take the cup. But if not, then it's your will that needs to be done. This doesn't surprise us. This is what the Father, it's, it's how he taught his disciples, Right? How are we to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every time I look at this text, I'm amazed at not only the Son's willingness, but also the Father's great love for us. When I have a task of, it's, I don't know, raking leaves, and you know, the kids are helping, and they say, you know, uh, Johnny just came over to shoot hoop. Can I, can I go do that? Or Sally just stopped over. Can I do that? 
I, but dad, if you want me to, I'll, I'll continue to help rake leaves. I know what they're asking. They, they literally like to go, right? And, and, you know, sure, love you, go do that. Think about this. What love of the father for us that he's willing to sacrifice his son. Ephesians 1 states, the father gave his son because of the pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace that he has freely bestowed on us. Jesus says yes to the Father's will. The Father says no to Jesus for going the cup. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's why. There's an important side note as well in this as you look at the subject of prayer. Sometimes our prayers are not answered, are they? It's not because of a lack of faith or a failure to know how to pray but simply because God has a much bigger plan than we might anticipate. Now, the son knew what the father was entailing, but we don't have that luxury being a part of the Godhead, do we? What we do have the luxury of is knowing that God gives us grace when we need it, 2 Corinthians 12. He grants us an opportunity to trust and lean on him, and he may answer the prayer even after we've passed away. But we're called to depend on the Lord. We're, we're called to bend our knee and say, not your will, or not my will, but your will, O Lord. <laughs> In verses 43 and 44, you have something very unusual. Only Luke records this event. That first is the angel appeared. Now, Luke records several times in his gospel about angels. So this should not surprise us that he highlights it here. Psalm 91, for he will command his angels, that's the Lord, concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Angels ministered to Jesus in the wilderness. They now minister to him again at this hour. And so here he is strengthening the, the, the son in the face of the coming suffering that is about to, to occur. The text tells us as well that there is sweat that was like drops of blood falling to the ground. There's two ways to, to render this. There are those who argue this is truly literal, that he sweat blood. There is a physical phenomenon, and I'm nervous because I know I have doctors in the house, so forgive me, but it's called hematidrosis. If I say it correctly, I think I am. Uh, tiny blood vessels in the skin that break open. The blood inside them may get squeezed out through sweat glands, or they might be a, like little pockets that then erupt where normally where follicles are, often seen in the face, but it can also be at the nose, the mouth, or the stomach. Interestingly, this rare phenomenon, Dr. State, occurs under great physical distress or fear. They think it may be related to our body's fight or flight, but it is a phenomenon that can occur where one sweats blood. Others argue, no, no, the Greek states it's like blood, and so this is a metaphor for what is occurring. At the end of the day, the agony is great, is it not? We, it's very clear that it, it's enormous. One scholar states, no man will ever be capable of sounding the depths of the Savior and what he experienced in Gethsemane. He's right. 
And certainly the thought of the physical and emotional anguish, and we're going to walk through that, especially when we get to Good Friday, as we look what does a crucifixion entail, and all that that included, the scourging, the beating, the humiliation, but nothing compares to the Son taking on our sin. And the separation of the Father and the Son. I, I cannot get my head around this. How does the Godhead sever fellowship? <laughs> I don't know. But certainly, this is where the agony resides. As he takes on the wrath of God, the wrath that we should have taken. S. Lewis Johnson writes, there is no explanation for his agony that satisfies unless one includes the agony of the anticipation of the divine condemnation for sin. The scene in the Garden of Gethsemane foreshadows the cross, does it not, in God's silence? A divine estrangement that comes that's so vividly expressed in Jesus Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a sign of distrust. It's a sign of statement of understanding. This is what's transpired because I took on your sin. It's not his fear of death that he's in agony at the garden or the shame that occurs. But again, the abandonment of the father as he bears our sin. Been watching the news, I'm sure you have as well, and our hearts break for what's happening in Ukraine. And you see these children, and you say, No child should have to undergo what they're undergoing. Their, their whole childhood has been stripped. The Godhead should not have to have fellowship severed because of our sin. But it was. For the first time, the Holy One must identify with unholiness as He hangs. On the cross. The Garden of Gethsemane, though, and all of this is a step towards Easter, is it not? Gethsemane sounds forth the cry, I am willing. The voice at the Calvary is, It is finished. And the voice of the empty tune is, Victory. This is the path that needs to take place. And so in this Moment when Christ comes to a, again a, a relationship with the Father and understanding this is what's about to transpire. I'd rather not go this route. My love for you, our intimacy as a father and a son, the relationship, but the understanding as well that I've got to bear the curse of humanity, our sin. And yet Christ says, But your will be done. And the Father says, It has to be because I love you all. <laughs> I love us. He loves humanity so much that he would provide a provision. Jesus then says in verse 45, he gets up from the prayer and he comes to the disciples and he finds the text is sleeping exhausted from grief. That's interesting. If they're sleeping, how do they know the grief? Well, I, I, there's clearly a spiritual component here, isn't there? They, they've allowed Satan to dupe them in laziness or, and, and thus missing, I would argue, what, what's just transpiring a stone throw away. The grief, I would argue, indicates they, there is an element of, of knowing something is about to happen. Jesus said at the Passover meal, I'm about to suffer. There, there's confusion. There's a sense of overwhelmness. There's sadness and certainly uncertainty 
that has come crashing in on top of the disciples. And certainly then there's the grief. And notice the text says, while you're sleeping, get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. It's repeated a second time here of what has happened. But who's in control? The Lord. You know, get up. This is what we're doing. He's in charge throughout it. And sadly, this will be the last words those disciples hear collectively until the resurrection. This is the last thing you're going to hear. Get up. You know, pay attention. You'll not fall into temptation. The scandal and horror of the disciples' response, you know, that here they are sleeping, I think is accentuated when we recognize that what just Jesus encountered with the Father was for them and it was for us. Isaac Watts states it so well. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. The garden is heavy. (laughs) It really is. To know what Christ has done for us. And you move into this next scene, and I think there's there's just a little bit of, I don't want to be disrespectful, but levity in it. Because, you see, Christ is in charge, and, and everyone's freaking out. Notice the text. Look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, suddenly the brute squad came, right? The crowd appeared. And it, if that's not bad enough, it says, and, oh, and by the way, there's a man. And who's the man? Judas. And just in case you missed it, the text tells us he's one of the 12. Right? <laughs> what? <laughs> he's, and he's leading them, the text says. He walks up to Jesus and he kisses him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Yes. And some measly shekels of silver. What there, those who were around him saw what was happening. This is the disciples. They said, Lord, should we use our swords? And then one of them struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his right ear. I love Dr. Luke. He tells us which ear it is. But Jesus said, enough of this. And he touched the man's ear and, and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers and the temple guard and the elders who had come up to get him, have you come out with swords and clubs like you would come against an outlaw? Day after day, when I was with you in the temple courts, you did not arrest me. This is dripping with hypocrisy, right? <laughs> I was there. You, you did nothing because that was in the daytime. You move in the night. But this is your hour and that of the power of darkness. First thing you see is this crowd, and we're told that later on there in verse 52, it's the chief priest. Now, you have members of the Sanhedrin that are present. You've got guards. The temple had, the Jews had their own temple police to monitor crowd control and other things that were going on there. So you would have had them as well. And you've brought this entourage, if we look at the other gospels, probably around 500. It's not a mob scene, though. This was premeditated. It was well orchestrated. And I would argue it's an all-inclusive entourage. They have done their homework. They have purposely made sure that it happens at this very time frame. And again, we see that Judas is highlighted. He knew the location. He had prayed with Jesus at the garden. (laughs) And to add insult to injury, it says he kisses him. And Matthew uses a term that is of great affection. It was standard 
in the first century world to greet, especially those that you have a deep friendship with, a kiss on the cheek. Even today, uh, when I would see some of my Palestinian friends, they'll kiss you on the side of the cheek. It is a standard greeting. But Proverbs 27 states, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Why do they need a sign? Because the text tells us elsewhere that Judas says, I'm going to kiss him so you'll know which one is Jesus. And you go, why do you need that? It was a full moon the previous night. There's still enough moonlight. You've got some lanterns. It's still a little dark. We don't have street lights. Also, all those Galileans look alike. Uh, and some of the security probably had no idea who Jesus was. I find that hard to believe on full level, but certainly some wouldn't. But they only have one chance. The religious rulers know there's a crucifixion the next day, and Jesus, in their opinion, needs to be on a cross. We got to make sure this is all taken care of. They've already, listen, they've already got the Sanhedrin ready for that night. Get ready, because we're bringing Jesus to you first. We got to get the charges leveled so we can bring it to Pilate to ensure this there is nothing that can thwart this plan. So they are very calculated, very careful, and Judas is glad to accommodate as Satan fills his heart. What irony, isn't it? Because back in Luke 7, we had a, a woman kissing Jesus' feet. It was one of great appreciation and joy. And now we have someone kissing him, and it's far from joyous. It's far from one of appreciation. Judas will fade into the narrative. We'll not see him again until we get to Acts where he will take his life. Even then he had another chance. Peter will repent. Judas, the text tells us, the Greek is very clear. It's not the word for repentance, it's a word for remorse. Those are two different things. Verses 49 and 50, the disciples make this response and they're expecting, Lord, should we use our swords? The Greek is clear. Yes, we should. So they pull them out. You say, well, why are they carrying swords? Well, that's not uncommon. Uh, we know that even the, the very monastic, conservative monastic group, the Essenes, would carry swords. And we're told that it's Peter in John's gospel who tells us that it's Peter who's the one who takes the sword and cuts the ear of uh, Malchus, the servant of the high priest. It could be his earlobe, depending on how you take the rendering here. Nonetheless, uh, Jesus says, enough, stop it. Why? I mean, wh why are you telling him stop it? Well, I think one is clear. This is God's plan. The disciples have failed to listen and understand. They have fallen, I would argue, into temptation or given way to it. They're attempting to thwart what God had intended. Wow. It, it's so easy as human beings to charge ahead of God and say, no, this is, this is how we're going to do it. This is God's plan. And the Lord's saying, no, 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 careful. They also presumed that Jesus needed assistance. <laughs> he didn't need their help. In fact, Peter, you didn't chop his head off. You only got his ear. So, you know, put the sword away. Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, if I wanted, I could call 12 legions, which is about 50 to 60,000 angels. 
I could put this down in a minute. That has nothing to do with it. And third, they've missed loving one's enemies. And then fourth, Jesus clearly states, I was no threat to you. That is to the religious rulers. I was no threat to you. I've been very open with who I am. I mean, you could have approached me earlier on and you didn't. And I love it. Jesus heals Malchus's ear. Again, Jesus is in control. It's the last miracle you'll see until the resurrection of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus' question in verse 52 has to be shocking. Have you come out with swords and clubs? I mean, it's clear, right? You're not come out here to play chess or backgammon, not with swords and clubs. And in fact, he says, have you come here against an outlaw? That term is someone who, a criminal who is laced with violence. You come out to get a terrorist? I'm not, I'm not that. What were you planning on doing when you came out here? <laughs> Jesus checksmates them. I love John's gospel. We're told that the, the brute squad fall on their faces. And it could be a sense of worship or it could be uh, um, kind of like melting away before the sovereign God. You could take it two ways or render it. Uh, Luke does not record that. But he does record in verse 53, day after day, Jesus tells them, when I was with you in the temple courts, you, you didn't do this. And so your, your hour has come. The doom of Mordor or the darkness of Mordor, right? Lord of the Rings, the powerful weapon of the dark of the lords, dark lords of the middle earth. I mean, you, you get this idea has come upon us. Luke 1 states, this child is, a, is going to give light to the darkness. And the horrible thing is, there's, is when the Lord turns his people over to sin. Romans 1, for those who wallow in sin, the, the worst thing you want is the Lord to say, fine, have at it. And in First and Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians two, we're told at the end times the restraining hand of God that holds back evil will be pulled back and allowed to have its way. But who's still in charge? God, the Lord. He's the one who controls all this. This is nothing by surprise. And the Lord, the God Almighty, has allowed Satan to take charge here in some form and that is to take the Lord's life but Satan will not win we know the end of the story but it is a moment of great darkness the text doesn't tell us here in Luke but Matthew and Mark tells us at this point the disciples scatter like light on cockroaches they're gone Peter and John will follow along but the rest won't and even then we know what's going to happen we'll see this next week with Peter's denial there are a few things to walk away with here in the text with Christ's agony. It's there in your notes. I just want to highlight these. First of all, Christ's agony indicates the perfection of Jesus as our high priest. What does that mean? Hebrews 4 states, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a, a perfect high priest who willingly submitted to the Father. If at any point Jesus said, nope, I'm not doing this, 
we don't have a high priest who can intercede on our behalf. And where would we go? The world doesn't provide any answers. Just look at where we are. <laughs> I mean, we're on the, the verge of a World War III. We just came out of a pandemic. I, you look at this mess and you're going, there's no solutions here, but there is here. It's found in the garden as Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done, O Lord. And so Christ's agony indicates that he's the perfection of Jesus as our high priest. Secondly, it demonstrates the sovereignty of God. Victory was gained at Gethsemane. No ruler, no army, no enemy, no sin, no injustice can divert, delay, or destroy God's plan. Amen? <laughs> you know, nothing, not Russia, not China, no political party, no one is going to undo God's plan. Isaiah 25 verse 1. I love this. Oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Jesus in the garden understood full well, this is the plan of God. This is the path that we need to take. And so he submits to the will of the Father. Third, Christ's agony displays his great love for you and me. This goes without saying, but you see the concern for the disciples. You see his concern for Malchus. The guy had come to arrest him. Let his ear fall off. No. God who's compassionate and caring and looks to provide. Think about this. If it wasn't for our sin, there would be no need for a Gethsemane. The father willed it and the son fulfilled it. There, the garden. Christ's agony illustrates the importance of obedience. Jesus embodies in his own prayer what should be our prayer for discipleship, and that is to be watching, to submitting to the will of God. It's not about enduring a trial. It's about humbly submitting to the will of God. Think about it. What is the lie of Satan that's been infused in our society. Do what's right for you. It makes me feel good. This is just who I am. <laughs> Jesus didn't throw out any of those lines at the garden. Mm -mm. J.C. Ryle makes this great statement. He says, surely that man must be an unhealthy state of soul who can think of all that Jesus suffered and yet cling to those sins for which that suffering was undergone. It was sin that wove the crown of thorns. It was the sin that pierced our Lord's hands and feet and side. It was sin that brought him to Gethsemane and Calvary, to the cross and to the grave. Could most our hearts be, if it would do us, sorry, it would do our hearts good if we would not hate sin? But no, we must hate sin. We must labor to get rid of it. Why? Because we understand what Christ has accomplished for us spot on. We look what happens at the garden and understanding how Christ is, has yielded his life to the will of the Father, that's a call for us to do the same. Romans 12, I appeal to you, Paul says, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. O church, may we not be found sleeping. (laughs) Take heed. As Jesus has emulated, we are to bow our knee to the will of God. I've met with many, many... (laughs) college students through the years when I taught and inevitable, the bottom line when it comes to sin was I refused to bend my knee before a holy God. It's the bottom line. Give me all the, you know, well, you don't understand my home life. You don't understand how this is how it feels. This is just natural to me. The list goes on. I don't care. (laughs) Notice the Father. He says, submit. And that's what Jesus did in the garden. And if you're still in doubt, look at Christ and look what he accomplished at the garden. His submission to the Father was to take on our sin so that he can declare at the cross, it is finished. Father, it is a heavy subject, the Garden of Gethsemane. Because one, it's a reminder of the great lengths you and your son have gone so that we could have a restored relationship with you, so that we could be declared righteous, as Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5. The son took on sin so that we might be declared righteous. Oh Lord, we marvel at that. And in the process, Lord, we're also called to emulate our Savior's life, and that is to bend our knee to the your will. And fathers, there's times when that's, that's difficult. It's times when it, it doesn't make sense, but we look at what happened there at the garden and it's a reminder, not our will, but your will be done. Lord, thank you for how much you love us. Thank you for the, the length you would go to ensure that we could have a relationship with you. We marvel at your grace. In the name of our blessed Savior, your Son, Jesus, we pray.